the first of several consignments due to arrive in the next few days. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. GoPro goes public and the stock jumps 30% on the first day of trading. We like to exceed expectation. We're extremely excited uh, to share GoPro in this new dimension as a public company and get the story out there on a global scale. And uh, we just couldn't be happier. That's the GoPro chief executive officer, Nick Woodman. So we'll have that story in a minute. Alibaba picks the New York Stock Exchange for its IPO. Moody's restates its negative outlook for Hong Kong banks. And customers turn out the lights on Barclays Dark Pools. In this case, we discovered a pattern of fraud uh, at, at, at Barclays in connection with its dark pool that... Uh, over the last really you know six months or so and some whistleblowers came forward that's the new york new york attorney general eric schneiderman equity markets were a little bit jittery overnight not so much because of barclays but in large part to this as time passes it becomes more and more difficult to argue that credit markets remain in a state of disrepair and thus harder and harder to justify continued low real rates that's the Fed St. Louis president, Jim Bullard, and markets were just a little bit lower overnight. At one point, the Dow was down 120 points, but it only finished down uh, 20 or so odd points for the day. We'll get to details on that in a moment. In our featured segments, we'll have Timothy Lamb from the JLJ Group on markets. Stuart Barker from Amarsis will be joining us. We'll be looking at e-commerce and some of the latest trends in digital retailing. And Bobby Ausinski, a music producer and Forbes contributor, will also be a guest on the program. We'll be looking at the latest plans from Google to break into the music streaming world. But let's take a look first at some of our top stories in more detail. And actually, let me tell you what uh, Asian markets are doing just here at the beginning, and then we'll get to the top stories. In South Korea, the uh, Kospi there is down just a little bit off four points at 1990. In Australia, the ASX 200 is up about uh, a fifth of a point at 54.47. Looking at currencies, the dollar yen is 101.64. That's not too much change. The euro is uh, changing hands at 1.361 U.S. dollars, and the pound is now 13 Hong Kong dollars and 19 cents. Well, I wanted to start off with this GoPro story because it's kind of a fun story. And it's a success story. And so we'll take a closer look now. GoPro is a maker of cameras used by surfers, skydivers, and X Games enthusiasts. Anybody who loves the outdoors. The company's stock rose 30% on its market debut. Nick Woodman, the CEO, was asked, why sell? Why go public? We want to extend the same uh, brand experience to our new customers, our investors, uh, that our uh, camera customers have. And that is one where uh, we like to exceed expectation. We're extremely excited uh, to share GoPro in this new dimension as a public company and get the story out there on a global scale. And uh, we just couldn't be happier. Videos taken by the company's users have been a big hit on the Internet. The company says its videos attracted more than one billion views in the first quarter alone on YouTube. Mr. Woodman was asked why he personally was selling a lot of stock. 
I'm still going to own uh, roughly a third of the company uh, now that we're a public company. Uh, I started GoPro 12 years ago and I bootstrapped it. Uh, and um, I've never been more passionate. And uh, we have a lot of uh, employees that have been longtime believers. Uh, and it's important that uh, they get to participate in the success that they've built at GoPro. And it's extremely important for us to remain competitive uh, in Silicon Valley as we try to recruit the, the brightest uh, and best out there. And being a co public company just makes it that much easier. Mr. Woodman said he failed in his first startup, and then he decided to go on a surfing trip to Australia, and he was thinking about what he could do next. He raised his first funds to develop the camera, which he uh, made on that trip, or which he kind of came up with the idea around the time of that trip. He made the money by selling seashell necklaces along the California coast. But wouldn't it be easy for other companies to do exactly what GoPro is doing? Truth be told, uh, we've had... Uh competition since well since the beginning but it in volume uh since about 2008 when gopro really started to have some success we started to see low-cost competitors knockoffs show up and then we've had some of the bigger uh consumer electronics companies in the world compete with us for the last two or three years and we've only seen our market share grow during that time period and uh, Felix Baumgartner's 24-mile jump from a stratospheric balloon was one of those uh, videos that was captured using a GoPro camera. Analyst Charlie Anderson from Doherty & Company estimates that GoPro has captured about 90% of the action camera market. Mr. Woodman says it's the content, not the hardware, that drives the business. Being in the content enablement business, we're really helping to uh, shepherd the lifespan, the life cycle of video. And so we monetize it first by selling a capture device. Uh, then if we have content creation tools and services, perhaps, uh, we may be able to monetize helping our customers create summary edits. And then there's an opportunity to monetize the resulting programming. So at GoPro, we're able to aggregate the best of our customers' content and redistribute it on the GoPro channels you see today. And that is uh, Nick Woodman, the CEO of GoPro. GoPro went public and listed on the NASDAQ, but Alibaba will list its shares on the New York Stock Exchange. The decision is a blow to the NASDAQ, which is hoping to grab the issue. The IPO might be the largest ever sale in the United States ever. Alibaba will use the ticker BABA. On Wall Street, stocks slipped for the third time in four days. We mentioned earlier Jim Bullard, the president of the Fed Bank of St. Louis, suggested that rates, interest rates might move up sooner than people think. Both CPI inflation has moved higher, but uh, PCE inflation has moved higher. Core PCE year over year now sitting at one and a half percent. So you're no longer in this sort of one percent inflation environment threatening to go lower, which is what they have in Europe. Instead, we were at this 1%, which had me worried, and now it's moving higher, which is what I've been predicting, and now I'm saying it's going to continue to go higher if this growth forecast comes, to be, comes true and unemployment forecast comes true, then I think inflation will continue to move higher through the rest of this year and actually go above 2% in 2015. You heard it here first, above 2% in 2015.
You heard it here first. And as such, he thinks that rates uh, will move up in the first quarter of next year. The consensus at the moment is about the middle of next year. The S&P 500 down two points at 1957. The Dow down 21 points at 16,846. But as I mentioned, it had been down about 120. Meantime, money managers and brokers are shunning Barclays' dark pool. The firm's CEO has pledged to investigate uh, the actions of Barclays. Here's the New York Attorney General. Eric Schneiderman saying what he's got on Barclays. One of the things Barclays was doing was uh, changing the data and misleading clients about how many of the trades were actually filled in Barclays' own dark pool. They were saying they had all this elaborate uh, propaganda saying, oh, we fill, we go to whatever market is best for the client. We always go for the best price, the best fill. And in fact, uh, the data that this, this uh, director was preparing for a big institutional investor showed that 75% of all the trades were filled in Barclays' dark pools. Eric Schneiderman. Deutsche Bank, Royal Bank of Canada, and Sanford C. Bernstein are among the broker-dealers that disconnected from the Barclays platform. And Barclays' stock was down 7%. In other news, Moody's Investors Service has restated its negative outlook on Hong Kong banks. It focused on the bank's risk over the next year and a half and their exposure to mainland borrowers. And Standard Chartered also stoked some concern, saying that first-half profit would be down 20% from the same period last year. Well, the time is now 12 minutes after 8 o'clock. We say good morning to Timothy Lam, Managing Director with the JLJ Group in Shanghai. Timothy, good morning. What are you focused on the most this morning? Uh, well, it's still early, but just uh, <laughs> responding to client emails. Uh, you know, predominantly, we're working with uh, quite a lot of companies that are entering the market that uh, they're looking to not just source anymore, but actually sell within the market. Yeah, well, uh, you know, spare some concern for us. We have to do this program every day at 8 o'clock and, and come in at 6, so in the same boat. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, I mentioned that Barclays, or that rather that Standard Charter was um, yesterday saying that uh, profit would be down 20% in the first half uh, compared to last year. And I just mentioned uh, Moody's is still quite concerned about the bank's exposure to borrowers in China. Um, is that concern warranted? I think there is still some concern about it, and I think uh, we've seen some changes in the past quarter in terms of, uh, you know, interest rates have lowered, and a lot of this has to do, I think, more with uh, demand for debt has actually uh, has shrunk more so than you're seeing a contraction in terms of uh, how the banks are dealing with it. Uh, so, but I think it's still a little too early to tell how that's going to pan out in the next, you know, uh, and I think we still need to see the next maybe three to six months to really get a better sense of. Uh, you know, how how China is going to really manage uh, their credit issues. Do you fear that defaults will be significantly higher this year? No, my understanding is they're looking at a way to smooth that over, out over the course of uh, a couple of years. And so I would say that you're going to see probably the, the government actually uh, moving in to ensure that this is something that uh, they're able to control. So a lot of investors listen to this program, trying to get ideas uh, on companies to chase. Uh, what are the sectors? What are the sectors that you see as uh, benefiting the most um, from the current conditions in the market? You know, lots of people have highlighted, um, you know, the e-commerce companies, uh, internet companies, but they did suffer quite a bit this year. Quite a big, strong sell-off. Plenty of the games makers and other software companies down forty, fifty percent in the market. What are the sectors that you like at the moment? 
retail, especially online retail for China, is something I think you're going to see uh, growing <coughs> uh, this year as well as next. Uh, probably also uh, anything to do with uh, services provided to the retired uh, population or the growing gray population, grain population of China is going to be a sector that uh, should be a, a, attractive to uh, potential investors especially because uh, you're going to see more and more of these uh, types of entities that are going to have to enter this market. What about travel companies, uh, hotels, airlines, uh, people feeding uh, the desire of uh, Chinese tourists to get out and experience more? No, that's also an excellent location uh, and opportunity as well, and I've seen quite a few companies that are uh, cropping up to provide these types of services in, uh, in various uh, countries. In fact, I had a... Uh, a meeting with one of my uh, old clients last week who's uh, actually setting up his own uh, tourist operation for Chinese catering to Chinese in North America. And uh, he was, his first venture was it was actually very quite successful, and he's looking at it his, uh, as his retirement plan. There's still a pall hanging over markets in Hong Kong and China. I have so many guests on this program, and it's not easy to highlight the exact nature of the fears because most people seem to think that the mainland authorities um, have it within their midst or they have the wherewithal and they certainly have the, uh, uh, the monetary firepower if they want to step in. But why is there such a pall hanging? A lot of it has to do with we're talking about a regime change that has occurred recently. You have Xi Jinping that's taken over last year. Uh, there's still a lot of questions in terms of the, you know, what is expected in terms of uh, how he's going to uh, 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 govern this country in the next uh, you know, several years. And so that, I think, having happened at, at the time that it did, has caused quite a lot of that, uh, that concern. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know, China is not a transparent country. Uh, this is not a place where the government is uh, very straightforward about uh, what their policies are uh, or what their thinking is. And so it's typically something where you work that out over a period of time. And I just don't think that investors and, uh, and uh, many of the, the China pundits have had really enough time to really work out what Xi Jinping and his uh, his uh, his group is going to do in the next in the coming years. That's an interesting take. I had an analyst on yesterday who was making an almost similar point, but it was actually just the flip side of what you're saying because uh, he was saying that when new leadership comes in, uh, they have to move strongly and sharply, and uh, you know they've got a lot of um, sharp ideas, and he just thinks that that. Um, uh, the premier and the president uh, have kind of flexed their muscles, and and that has been a reason, uh, you know, for some of the uh, um, the market uh, doubts. Well, that could be true, and they certainly have, in some extent. But a lot of it has been, uh, you know, a lot of some of it has been, uh, you know, a, a lot of talk and, and no real action. And I think one of the things that we've spoken about before was the free trade zone. And, you know, that's the Shanghai free trade zone is something that we haven't seen a significant amount of movement on. But, yeah, and, but the, the ultimately what I'm discussing as well is in terms of what are the underlying motivations for uh, some of these changes. So you've seen things, for example, in terms of uh, the move for anti-corruption, uh, you know, cracking down on, on corruption within the, within the party, as well as a, uh, a correction or rebalancing of uh, of the banks in China, but yeah. it, is that something that you're going to see over the long term? And okay. I think that's where we really just don't have 
uh, you know, enough uh, information to be able to tell. Okay, Timothy, thank you very much for taking out the time this morning. Timothy Lamb, Managing Director with the JLJ Group, on the line from Shanghai. Eighteen minutes after eight o'clock. I'm happy to have uh, Stuart Barker, country manager of Amarsis, in the studios, and it's a great time, uh, uh, Stuart, to have you in to talk about uh, e-commerce and and um, digital retailing and this sort of thing. Because you've got uh, Alibaba in the news today with uh, selecting the New York Stock Exchange. You've got a, a deal um, of sorts uh, with. Um, uh, Tencent. And there's, of course, a big battle between Tencent and, and Alibaba. So welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very uh, yeah. much for having me. If you could just come in a little closer to the mic, uh, that'd be great. Um, what are the, some of the sharpest trends that you're watching at the moment, particularly in light of this battle between, say, Alibaba and Tencent? Yeah, I think there's some interesting emerging trends on the market. Certainly, um, e-commerce players generally are putting the customer much more in the center of their thinking. I think for a long time, it's been about sort of, you know, discount-driven marketing, or they've just been looking to promote and push sales. And what we're really seeing now is a change, and they're looking to honor the customer, put the customer very much in the middle of what they're doing and their thinking. Um, I think... But there are two sort of tiers of e-commerce that we need to address. There's, of course, the Alibabas. They're right at the top, you know, hugely resourced, lots of capability, lots of money to make things happen. But underneath it, there's this whole new emerging um, sort of uh, mid-tier player around e-commerce. Successful companies, great discipline, great use of technology, um, and they're really cutting through. And, and that's actually where we see a lot of the really exciting growth. You're talking about uh, e-commerce companies or companies that feed into it like, let's say, logistics companies? No, I think it's e-commerce. I mean, there's a real emergence of e-commerce, in, particularly in South China. We see a lot of people there, a lot of exciting companies that are sort of internationally exporting, using e-commerce as the primary vehicle. Um, Hong Kong itself has got an amazing uh, stable of emerging, really high-quality, challenging e-commerce companies. And these guys are looking at the things that Alibaba and Tencent are doing, and they're replicating that. And often they're actually raising the bar and exceeding some of the, uh, some of the things they're doing. You also made an interesting point that it's more than just price. Um, so is there an element in this about doing something special for the customer that they will stay with you? Yeah, I mean, it's completely that. And actually, the people that are being successful now are the ones that are really capturing this ideal. So, I mean, I grew up in, uh, in the UK and my mum actually was a shopkeeper. And what was interesting is that with no CRM system, with no database, she knew her customers. You know, she knew their families, she knew what they did, how they, um, you know, how they spent their time. And she made really, really good decisions about what they may be interested in or what they may want to buy. She knew, um, you know, when to make a phone call to tell someone a particular product was coming back into stock, right? But doesn't e-commerce lack that? Well, this is the kind of thing that people are really driving towards now. And what we're seeing is a shift in the market. We're seeing people now looking to replicate that shopkeeper experience. So what, I buy something and their algorithms uh, know uh, enough about me that they can uh, somehow offer me something that I really wanted anyway? Well, that's exactly what people are doing. So the use of algorithms is a really big emerging trend. There's um, you know, many, many now capabilities on the market that help people to make really good data-driven decisions around people, consumers, what they may be interested in buying. Hmm. Because, of course, there's the thought out there that Amazon, you know, has gotten bigger and stronger 
and uh, because it keeps lowering prices and it doesn't make money. As soon as it tries to raise prices, it's going to fall flat on its face. I mean, there is that school of thought um, that as soon as these companies actually have to raise rates, they're going to lose customers. Yeah. You don't agree? Well, in the case of Amazon, I probably would. I think the Amazon proposition actually is built around price. What I think is more interesting to look at is perhaps, um, you know, a different kind of retailer, someone like maybe Sasa.com, who's one of our clients here in Hong Kong. Um, you know, the challenge they face is very different. They're looking to engage their customers and they're not looking to do it around price. You know, they want to see a quality relationship. They want to understand their customers better. And I think they believe, as I do, that if they get that understanding and they really do make the effort to honour their customers and, 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 you know, capture their data and use it respectfully, they'll build really good quality relationships and those relationships will eventually become highly monetizable. But Sasa's in the news uh, today warning of a challenging year ahead, wow. saying, uh, actually saying that um, it, particularly in Hong Kong, it's, it's a problem of the number of mainland visitors will probably be um, a lot less and also that their spending is, is falling. Um, but do you think that you know they will be making up more on the um, on the e-retailing side that they might be losing on the traffic side i think it's a real opportunity for them if mm. the chinese mainland isn't traveling to here you've got to kind of get your stores to the chinese mainland and obviously online is a really good way of doing that okay so tell me about some other trends that that you like uh, that you think our audience would be interested in yeah i mean content obviously is a key one um funnily enough your previous uh, interview with gopro well the gopro thing really i mean it's you think it's about hardware you know these little cameras uh, and of course it is, but you know the CEO is pushing the content side. Yeah, and it's about engaging with consumers. And obviously consumers want to be entertained. They want to be educated in some instances, but certainly they want to be interested by what you have to say. And content is a key part of that. So we're seeing more and more investment in content. But importantly, we're seeing it now as a centerpiece of a customer engagement dialogue. You know, brands are using content as a way of illustrating that they share values with their consumers, that they share the same viewpoint as their consumers. And I think people like to buy from companies that they kind of feel similar to. You know, I mean, Apple, for a long time, so people buy us because they believe what we believe. And content is a really good way of a business expressing who it is they are, what their values are, and, you know, they can attract customers through that. So it's not just the distribution, it's actually the content behind it. Yeah, it's about actually uh, what do you stand for, making customers and consumers understand who you are as a company. And that kind of emotional connection really helps them to avoid this problem around, you know, pricing and showrooming, you know. But I'll bet your mom still doesn't like um, the Amazon. So well, she got out of the shopkeeping game a long time ago, I'm pleased, <laughs> but I think Amazon would have been a big problem. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Stuart, thanks very much for joining us here on the program. Uh, interesting chat and uh, love to have you back. Stuart Barker, country manager of Amarsis here in Hong Kong. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Well, we'll stay with the online world for the moment. Google will be looking to convert video site YouTube into the next big streaming service. Reports have been uh, coming out that YouTube will squeeze out some artists who don't agree with its low royalty licensing terms, leaving only major labels who can afford to be there on the site. Let's say good morning to Bobby Osinski, music producer and author to the program. Bobby, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Is that a fair representation, uh, what we opened up with there, that um, YouTube will probably look to squeeze out some artists who uh, don't go along with the royalty licensing terms? I don't think they're looking to do that. I think it will happen sort of as a byproduct of the way they're doing business. But it's a fairly complex 
situation in that there's a lot of moving parts here. YouTube right now, even without the new streaming service, is the number one discovery engine online. And that's where, especially the younger you get, the more likely you are to discover your music via Google, via uh, YouTube. And what they're trying to do is capitalize on that by starting the streaming service. But there's a lot of, of thought that perhaps they may actually be uh, cannibalizing either what they have now or their own streaming service right now. They have Google Play All Access, which is a, a subscription service right now. And that's what the new YouTube uh, service will be as well. It'll be a subscription service, but it'll be a subscription service that will basically allow you to look at music videos without ads and also to download them, uh, you know, so you can play them later, so you don't have to be connected to the, to the Internet. And that's what it's all about. Is there a danger that, uh, I'm not even sure who YouTube's biggest competitor is, but uh, is there a danger that they will lose some business over this? I doubt it at the moment. There's a number of competitors, but they're not even in the same class, or not even close. And right now, YouTube is so convenient uh, for everybody to use and get what they want out of it. And perhaps that's the, the real crux of the matter. It's very convenient. Are they going to make it harder to use as a result of the service? Are they going to be cannibalizing something that works really well now? And we don't know that yet. I've talked to people who've seen the service. I have not. I've talked to people who've seen it in beta, and they say it's, they really like it uh, as much as they could tell me under NDA. Uh, one of the, the problems that Google's been having for a while, YouTube's been having, is what kind of picture do they supply with the music? And do they supply something that's more like a karaoke video, a bad karaoke video? What, what do they supply? It, it's fairly... Uh, cut and dried right now because on an official music video you put your own either video up or many times what a record label will do to get something up very quickly without a produced video is just put a, a lyric or a uh, just a straight picture of the artist and that works equally well but that probably won't be an option on the new service so we're all waiting to see exactly what that will be you know, if you look at the big picture, uh, downloading music used to be the thing. Now it's all all um, really streaming, uh, streaming services, uh, and that particularly uh, this move that we see from Google on YouTube is that um, you know these streaming services are not making any money, and their lifespan probably uh, you know isn't going to be that long unless they can find a way to monetize it. Um, what is the next step? I mean, at some point, will people go back to listening to the radio? Well, they still are, and if you look at all the surveys, you find that radio is still by far the number one uh, entertainment uh, distributor. Yeah, I kind of meant and it as a joke, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things I think is going to happen is there's going to be a big shakeout. Right now, I, I don't know exactly how many streaming services that we have uh, worldwide but there, there's quite a number of them, and I believe that we're going to get down to three, maybe four, outside case, maybe five. And the three, of course, are going to be Google, Amazon, and Apple. So, so you think Pandora and, and Spotify um, completely go away or get purchased? 
Well, I, I think they may be purchased rather than go away. Uh, I also think that one of them will probably remain. There'll okay. probably be a fourth service that will be, you know, certainly not in the same category as the big three. But one of the reasons why the big three can do this and not have to worry about, you know, the the high cost of doing business, which is, you know, mostly licensing fees, is that they can... Um, they can afford to be in the business with losing money with music. Yeah. Okay. They don't 20, have to make money from music. 20 seconds, Bobby, because we're out of time. It's the bottom of the hour, unfortunately, but 20 seconds. Is this an okay time to be an upcoming uh, band or musical artist? Yes. It's never changed. It's always been difficult. It's no difficult, no more difficult or more no more or less difficult than it has been in the past. And a lot of options. Okay. Uh, Bobby, thanks very much for joining us. And next time, uh, let's do it again, and we'll have a little bit more time. Thank you. Bobby Ozinski, music producer and author, joining us here live on Money for Nothing. Markets are kind of stuck in the mud. Not much of a change there for all the markets that are open here in Asia. I mentioned uh, about uh, the equity markets, but what about oil? 113.21, so oil down. And gold at $1,316 stuck there. We'll see you next Monday. Brief look at the weather, uh, mainly fine apart from some showers. And, of course, very hot, up to 33 as the high. The news with Samantha Butler. A medical professional has warned the public not to undergo high-risk procedures in beauty parlours following the death yesterday of a 32-year-old woman during liposuction. The procedure involves removing fat from different areas of the body and was reportedly being performed under a doctor's supervision at a parlour in Jim Sha Joy when the patient lost consciousness. 